Welcome to Geared for Growth. This week we're chatting with Marty Sadlier, who is a co-founder and director of MCG Quantity Surveyors, so he happens to be my business partner. Now, I wasn't going to get him on the show for that reason, but Marty has such a breadth of experience that I thought that was a little bit of a waste. So, Marty is a quantity surveyor and construction cost estimating expert, so we have a chat to him about milestone payments with building contracts, where contracts and work with builders can go wrong and escalate into expert with We talk about strata sinking funds and replacement cost estimates for insurances. So it's a great interview. Marty's got a wealth of knowledge on those topics and I hope you enjoy. Cheers. Marty Sadlier, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So full disclosure, Marty, you are my business partner. We happen to be in the same office at the moment, but so the listeners get uh, a background of you. So who, who are you and what do you do? Yeah, so um, look, I guess I'm a, I'm a quantity surveyor um, and I, I tend to do um, you know, more of the traditional side of things with quantity surveying with cost estimation and those sort of things. Um, I'm a father, I've got a couple of kids um, that are at school, um, so we're into that phase of our lives. Um, so yeah, I, I think I'm a, um, you know, prior to fatherhood and uh, quantity surveying I um, was building um, so I spent a lot of time on building sites and uh, I think that uh, helps when it comes to um, being rounded in something you can sort of you know you've been on both sides of the fence so to speak from a a physical sense on sites to then an office-based type role um, you know analyzing and and looking at things that you know you would have ordinarily in the past been erecting or, or working on yep now a little bit of dirt on on the real Marty sadly what were the posters on your bedroom wall as a youngster yeah look I uh, I shared a room I'm a twin actually I've got a twin sister so I would have shared a room with my sister for the first couple of years and then um, she got uh, promoted to her own bedroom and and shared with my older brother right so I think um, early on we, we probably were sharing you know maybe um, Voltron or Astro Boy or Care Bears or something <laughs> posters, but right. uh, then when I think it became a little bit more manly, um, it would have been adolescence. It was probably um, you know, in excess, or and that was probably my brother. I was probably more rock set or something. Um, <laughs> so and, and probably a couple of Australian cricketers, uh, probably Bernie, Bernie, Dean Jones, or uh, some some of the the real legends of um, you know moustache wearing and uh one could run incredibly well between wickets the other is alleged never to have run at all yes <laughs> so how did you first get started in in property and what was your first investment uh so getting started in the property was uh we invested um in thornton in new south wales and, and i guess uh it's probably slightly uneducated to a certain degree in it that we bought looking for you know, a, a place to live. We'd, we'd been renting in the area for some time. So probably the smart thing we did was we wanted to live in the area, so we rented uh, for a few years. We rented for about four years, um, two houses, uh, a couple of 100 metres from each other, and then bought 
uh, a house about a, oh, 50 metres or, um, or thereabouts from our second house that we were renting. So we knew the area. I think that was um, probably the only thing that was in our favour in regards to, because when we first bought, we weren't looking at it from an investor's sort of point of view and it was before um, I'd really gained the knowledge on property. It was when I was sort of still on the tools building and just wanted to get a family home. But um I guess the the advice we we sort of took from some friends at the time was you know rent in the area and just see if you even like it and yep. and that 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 really worked for us and and that property was our principal place of residence for some time and it um I think that that's where we got started and and you know maybe we've been lucky um with that but um certainly knew what we wanted because we experienced the area yep and I think it's uh, it's it's been a pretty good investment uh, for you. For those that, that don't know, I guess it's sort of somewhere between sort of Newcastle and Maitland, heading out towards the uh, the wineries, the Hunter Valley, uh, and you've yeah. done pretty well out of that. Yeah, we have. I mean, when we um, actually bought it, the the agents and, and a little bit of data that were going around at the time was indicating that um, you know in the next sort of five years. Um, or yeah, between five and ten years, you know, the area would be expecting about a twenty percent growth, and wow. um, and you know, I look, I don't think we've necessarily um, achieved that. We've we've had that property longer than that sort of five ten year mark, but um, it, it, it's certainly fairly it's fairly close. It would be in the high teens certainly. Um, so it, it has been a good investment for us. Awesome. Now let's get into the, the nuts and bolts of, of what you do. Um, I, I guess for a while I kind of thought, oh, I won't get Marty on the podcast because I didn't want to be that sort of greasy, self-promoting sort of thing. So we won't be, yeah. we won't be getting anyone, uh, we won't be sort of hammering anyone with any sort of sales about our business or, or what we do. But I thought it crazy not to get you on as, as a guest just because of the expertise that you've got. I mean, you're a um, accredited expert witness with the Royal Institute of Chartered Surveyors and there's, there's not many of those in Australia, member of the Australian Institute of Quantity Surveyors and Royal Institute of Chartered Surveyors, and you've got a, a big, uh, you know, long background in you know all, everything from shop fitting to building to, of course, quantity surveying. Uh, so, how did you actually become a quantity surveyor? Yeah, I uh, I was building. Uh, I was playing football and I uh, in in Sydney, and I had a few injuries, and and I I noticed that I was more sort of sitting at the bottom of the ladder holding it for someone than being on the top with a nail gun um, a lot of times because of just injuries and those sort of things and and then as I sort of I then finished my uh, apprenticeship and was lucky enough that I was in about my fourth year or third year I was a uh, leading hand for the particular company that I was working for and then when I sort of finished my apprenticeship um, I was almost like a foreman um, for for those sites and and then the sort of side promotion to that was we're a bit short-staffed in the office can you help with some estimating or you know contracts admin and those sort of things and double checking some um, tenders coming in from subcontractors and so I, I, my role sort of started to move away from swinging an S-wing on site and wearing a nail belt to to sort of shuffling papers anyway um, and it, it was a fairly good mix because I could do some of that paperwork still go out and site, walk around, help out, jump in when needed. And I think that was just my organisation why yep. I was in those positions because there were guys on you know on the site that were certainly more experienced than me and knew a lot more about building, but maybe at the time weren't 
was uh, weren't thinking of three hours down the line or the next day down the line. You know, like looking across and going, oh, you know what, that sand's getting a bit low. We're going to need to order some more sand. So I think it was maybe just some of my. Uh, the, the sort of logistics of looking at things and going, you know what, we're going to need that, we're going to need, and looking ahead. And so I think um, that's what sort of got me moved into uh, more of an, an organisation and an, uh, an, an organisation of um, trades as opposed to just working on the site. And then I really got, took an interest to it. I, um, I started to get involved in uh, pricing up some of our, our quotes for works, uh, like for decks and cottage rebuilds and those sort of things uh, and I really had an interest in that I guess and um, I wanted to progress a little bit further in regards to learning so I decided to um, go to uni um, I didn't go straight to uni from school I, I did my apprenticeship and I, I sort of had a little bit of a thirst for knowledge back then and wanted to do something else so I did my bachelor of construction management and and then started working um, while I was at uni uh, with a quantity surveying company, and so then started like a, like most quantity surveyors at the start of their career, just being an estimator, yep. getting in there and ripping the the, the quantums and um, off the plans and and marking them up, and um, really just enjoyed it. I, I love being able to get a big set of plans and um, you know, put some music on and and work through it. And I guess uh, seven years ago, you were unfortunate enough to bump into myself and have the crazy idea to start MCG, and that uh, brings us to today. With yeah. um, with uh, cost planning, uh, or I should say quantity surveying, I guess there's a little bit more sort of education amongst property investors that quantity surveyors do tax depreciation. I guess it's a little bit more of a heavily marketed sort of thing, but um, yeah. tax depreciation is a relatively new service for, for quantity surveyors. So what, what, yeah. what is it that you, that you do? Yeah, look, and I think uh, tax depreciation is, is probably on the lips of people because it's potentially the last service that you would get from a a quantity surveyor on, on a on a property um, the job's built and it's now rented uh, whereas when we go back to the very start on a job the quantity surveying is seeing whether these drawings from a feasibility point of view can even be built uh, for a certain budget so um, what we do I, I guess you know some people um, liken us to the accountants of uh, the building world, the bean counters of bricks and, and studs and noggins. Um, I guess when, when we look at the, the big picture of things, we're, we're more of a, um, a consultant in regards to costs. So we yep. have investors or developers that are looking at wanting to buy a block of land or an old house and they want to knock it down and want to build something. They don't even know whether they're going to be able to afford this, whether they're going to have to get money from a bank or what that that sort of number is going to be. So that's where a quantity surveyor can help with that. Uh, so we would measure up, and it could be you know a drawing almost drawn on the back of a serviette because they haven't really wanted to go and spend money on getting full design drawings done by an architect. Yep. Um, and in the same in the same token, an architect we do a lot of work with arch, uh, architects because a client will go to an architect and say. This is my home I want. I have a budget of a million dollars. Can you please draw me something, design me something to that budget? Yep. So an architect's not want to go doesn't want to go back to that client and 
have got their hopes up and shown them this wonderful design um, that's going to cost 1.5 and they just can't do it. So we get a lot of architects will send through drawings and say, can you please you know, give us a budget on this? Yeah. Um, so and that's those sort of the, both of those services are at the start of a job. Um, there hasn't been a, a digger on site or a, a, a bit of Rio mesh put down yet. Uh, it's all in regards to let's cost our design to see how much it's going to cost, and if we can't afford that, do we have to go to a bank or um, you know um, get a, some sort of a loan, or we need to save more, or let's redesign it to get it down under budget. Yep. And I guess there's different types of reports depending on what they're trying to achieve or, or how sophisticated or far down the line in that development process they are. Yeah, absolutely. So if you're look, if you were looking at uh, wanting to get a cost plan done on a property that was pretty well now finalised in design and you wanted to be comparing some builder's pricing that was coming in, uh, depending on how you're going to get that builder's pricing coming in, you may want some more meat on the bones. So we would do more of a detailed cost plan where we would be counting toilets and taps and how many actual square metres of wall tiles and floor tiles and carpet. So they can really see where the money is in that um, budget. Now, if it is an organised tender, um, that there is a, a, a compliance in regards to how it has to be submitted, the builder might have to break up certain costs against certain trades. That's a, a much easier apples and apples comparison when you've got a detailed cost plan done from a quantity surveyor in the same breakup. But if you're getting a lump sum from a builder that says, I'm going to build this house for $2 million for you, you're none the wiser to know where that $2 million is. Is it in the ground? Is it the roof? Is it the specialised glazing that's going in? So by being able to break up that $2 million uh, into what it is going to cost for those individual trades can help you make some more rational decisions later on in regards to what you may need to compromise on or, or not. And that's a process that you run through with the architects as well right because an architect might build you your dream home and then you realize well if we change one or two elements we can we can adjust the cost by hundreds of thousands of dollars perhaps yeah exactly and and a simple one you know maybe just glazing that there might be 400 square meters of glazing in this big house uh, and that doesn't want to change because of light and, and those sort of things but we can sort of say well yeah but of that 400 square meters of glazing you've got 30 or 40 square metres of bifold doors that are work like much more expensive than, say, doing some sliding doors or yep. some couple of fixed panels and a swing door or what, ha- what it might be. And so there can be a bit of a reconfiguring of um, even just the exact same square metres of glazing but different types in different areas. Yep. Now, you mentioned banks before, and I know that banks are, are one of your sort of biggest clients. W- which banks are you working with, and, and what is it that they engage you to do? Yeah, so we, we've got, we work with quite a few banks uh, of various sizes. So I guess when you look at the, the big banks, uh, we do a lot of work with Westpac and St George uh, in, in New South Wales. And then when you go to Victoria, um, there's a bit of a mix there where we also do the Bank of Melbourne and Westpac and St George. Uh, and we, we've done reports for ANZ. And, and so when we talk about a panel QS um, a, or a panel quantity surveyor, a, a bank will have a, a panel of quantity surveyors that I guess they have vetted that suits their uh, criteria uh, and 
So a developer may go to a bank and say, um, you know, I need to get a quantity surveyors done, who's on your panel? Uh, and vice versa, a, a bank might say, you need to use a QS, these are the guys that are on our panel. Yep. So um, predominantly, that they're the banks that we're working with um, on, on the large scale. And then on, on, the, on the smaller scale, there are smaller sort of you know, um, agility finance and Australian Securities Limited and, and these smaller um, finance, patent finance and those sort of things that you know, we do just as much work with um, and they're just a little bit more you know, boutique. Yep. And, and typically, what, what are they getting you to, to do for the projects? So from a, a bank's point of view, they want to make sure that what they're lending for the property uh, is what the property will be built for. So they don't want to fund a job that isn't going to get the job to completion. And, and that's a risk mitigation. They don't want to um, fund $500,000 on a property that's going to cost a million dollars to build because if something goes wrong, there's not enough money to get the job finished up. Right. So they're wanting to make sure that uh, what the, the criteria that the developer or the client wants, that the funds are there in pre-approved uh, buckets, so to speak, uh, to get the job finished. And and then it goes a bit further in regards to a bank also wants a quantity surveyor to to check the plans, that you know, there, there's enough accuracy in them in terms of detail. They're not just the plans that are sketched on the back of the serviette and provide commentary on that and provide commentary on a, a builder's resume. Has he done these sort of jobs before? Has the developer done these jobs before? Yep. It might be good and well that a developer is coming to a bank and saying, I've got a, you know, 30 years of experience in building. I've, had, you know, I've always built shopping centres uh, and now I want to build residential towers. There's a bit of a difference there. Yep. Uh, you're using different trades, different methodologies. So um, the big thing there is they're looking at Getting the quantity surveyor to to be their eyes and ears um, on the on, on the documentation that they have at thus far and provide you know their opinion on that. Yep. And then if it goes through to progress claims uh, uh, and monitoring of funds when it comes to payment for for builders' works, also looking at you know, the insurances are up to date, uh, mandatory inspections are being completed, and, and and the costs that are being claimed for works being done are you know. A, a, relevant to the work sort of um, been requested for payment. So I guess you'll do your sort of initial checks on the on the builder themselves and make sure that you know you're recommending that they're able to complete that project and of course complete that project for for what they think uh, is a reasonable sum which you'd sort of double check and then as you mentioned progress claims so so when there are the I guess the development has been given the green light the banks don't want to sort of just say here's your $10 million, good luck with that because people tend to sort of buy Ferraris and go to non-extraditional countries, I guess. So yes. how do those sort of progress claims work and how do they differ from, say, a, a residential contract where, let's say, you get, um, you know, a GJ Gardner or, or one of those types and they, and they issue sort of, you, you pay them based on milestones. What's the difference there? Yeah, so the, the, I guess there's a couple of parts to that and that is is that, there are three main players in that process at that point. There, there is the funder, uh, there's the developer and the builder. Now, in its simplest form, there's going to be a couple of different contracts signed here. There's going to be a construction contract signed between the developer and the builder, which is going to be the contract uh, or the Bible for the build. Uh, so um, with the specification of what the quality of the finishes and those things are going to be. And that, that's what's going to... 
control the site in regards to you know timings of things and that sort of stuff and, th- and that would break out a, a payment plan whether it be uh, the builder is going to claim on the 25th of the month and uh, if there's a late payment there's a certain percentage um, that's owed to them uh, and that they're going to be paid for materials you know, fixed aside or they're going to be paid under a milestone or a staged method. Yep. And the other side to that is that there would be a contract uh, signed between the developer and the bank or the funder, financier, and, and that is the financial agreement of of the loan criteria in terms of money. So what interest rate that person's going to be paying for the borrowing of this uh, particular sum of money. Yeah. The issue is is that the fine prints on those contracts don't necessarily line up. So in a lot of cases, the the agreement that developer signs with the builder is going to be for, uh, uh, in that instance, uh, a milestone. So when he finishes base stage, uh, so when he's got his, all these slabs down, and then the next stage would be frame stage, so when he's got all these timber frames up. Now, the issue that you would have there is is that the problem is, though, that the, the developer is relying on funds coming from another party, so a, a bank, and that agreement that has been signed is that the bank is going to pass funds to the developer for materials fixed to site. So you instantly have a bit of an issue there where uh, the the money that the developer is getting hold of is only for works that have been done to site, whereas a builder has signed a contract uh, with the developer saying it's on a a staged process. Now, that's going to have been um, including a a deposit, so there's 5% that's already been paid to a builder and no work has been done on the site. Now, there's not to say that money isn't being spent wisely. It would be, um, you know, making sure insurances are in place and site fencing and establishments being done and paying for deposits for, you know, long lead items, windows and et cetera. So, but when it came comes time to payment, there's nothing actually done there. So the bank isn't going to want to give that sort of money over. So they use quantity surveyors to, to help track that and, and, and provide opinions on how that is best managed um, it doesn't always go smoothly um, but as long as you get all the parties in in a room and explain the process I think people are a little more comfortable with it yep and I was going to ask some of the typical issues that you sort of come across with progress claims obviously if a if a builder saying I spent you know 200 grand on windows but they haven't been arrived and, and fixed a site there's going to be a discrepancy with with the funds available and that sort of uh, that sort of thing. With, with yeah. sort of residential investors and builders in mind, have you got any sort of advice on how they can structure their contracts um, around those milestones and, and maybe some of the cheeky things that builders do to sort of front load the, the expenses there and, and just just any important comments that you might have on, on you know, liquidated damages and time delays and how those sorts of things are managed? Yeah, I think you've just got to You've got to go to the table with an open mind and, and you know, put multiple hats on, whether you're the developer or the builder, just see where the other side's coming from. So early in a contract, a builder's going to propose a staged um, payment plan, so base stage, frame stage. Now, he's going to front load that, as you said before. Now, it's not that he's doing anything untoward at all. It's that he's not the bank. Uh, so he knows that he's going to have to. So he might have twenty percent for base stage, which you know, on a million dollar contract, uh, you know, he that's not going to be the total amount of concrete that's required on the site. It's going to seem that he's claiming a lot more 
uh, for the value of works that's being done. But he's also rec- getting some extra money there so that he can put deposits on long lead items and, and pay for those windows to be getting manufactured off-site because he's going to have to pay for those before they come to site. So there's nothing so, typically wrong with that in, in, in essence, and as long as your bank's sort of happy with those milestones, they're going to pay the money anyway? Well, they may not pay the money anyway. They may pay only for materials fixed to site, and it may be that the developer's got to meet that shortfall. And that, right. that's why it's important to understand how that's broken up. And, and I think a developer should be, if, if he was using a quantity to surveyor at the start, can have a look at the time of contract signing and saying, we, we don't really think that 20% is a fair amount for for base stage, you know, I think we should it should be closer to fifteen, and the real cost might actually be ten percent. Um, but there's a bit been a bit of a compromise there that you know, we're giving you fifteen. We've, we're also giving you a bit of float there for the long lead items, and you already have a five percent deposit, so that should see you in those early stages um, in good standing, uh, as opposed to it being twenty percent plus the five percent for the deposit. Uh, it, it comes down to exposure, and and I guess. The bank is looking at it that, well, we're funding this job and if we're going to pay out 25% on a milestone and the building works stop and they don't get past base stage and a relationship breaks down, there's not enough money left to finish the job right? because we've already paid out 25% of the cost and we've only actually got on site 10% of that. So a developer needs to understand why that and why that's in place and, and I think where you tend to get more of the issues is when all three parties are on their own in regards to an understanding on that. So the bank is quite clear on why they're releasing money in that way. A developer's just wanting the builder to get paid and just wants to be able to get his money when he wants it yeah. or she wants it. And the builder is just wanting to get paid as per the contract, otherwise he or she is going to go and build another job somewhere else. But if you all get on the same page as how this money is going to come and the timings of that, people can work through it fairly well. And obviously that doesn't always go uh, terribly well and, and you do no. a lot of expert witness so there'll be a solicitor or, or a barrister that's engaging you as as an expert on a, on a development project um, from a costing point of view and a programming point of view. Typically what goes wrong and, and what's your role in that side of things? I think a lot of it's communication. Uh, some of these builds are going for over a year, uh, and certainly big sort of residential unit uh, developments are longer than that. And people get tired, um, and communication breaks down. And in a lot of cases, when I do expert witness, um, you meet up with the parties, and they were almost best friends for three quarters of the build, but towards the end. There are stresses in life that you know change, and you, you're also then you know in bed with the bank for quite a lot of, from a developer's point of view with, with quite a lot of money. Or if you're the the builder, you could be owed quite a lot of money. And you, when you're getting towards the end, it's just that increase in stress, and and the communication tends to slow up a little bit because everyone's a bit busy. And and the problem is it comes down to one party feeling that they've either paid too much, or one party feeling they haven't been paid enough. And sometimes the straw that breaks the camel's back in that regard is the really small one and it may be over something that is a small thing like the quality of a driveway or the quality of a paint finish in a room and it all just breaks down so what we try and do in that instance is get them in a room and say come on look it's no good for anyone uh, at this point if 
the builder leaves site or the developer wants the builder gone, it's going to cost a lot more money to, to fix this up. And if you're the builder, you're going to miss out on some profit and, and those sort of things. So we try and, and get people to work through it. It's better if the person that starts the job finishes it just with sign-offs of services and those sort of things. Yep. Um, but it, it, it comes down to, in a lot of cases, just trust seems to, to wane a little bit between the two parties. Um, and sometimes it it's just some people are, either of those parties are a bit worried about being completely honest. Um, and I think if people were more honest in a lot of those situations, it wouldn't escalate. And an example of that would be that a builder's going slow on site and he's starting to really slow up and you know, a developer would be saying, come on, what's going on? Like we're meant to be finished in a month and we've still got heaps to go, you know, what's going on? And the builder would be like, oh yeah, it's all right. You know, it's just been a bit rough, the weather or what have you, and it's not. And and there's, but if the builder potentially said, you know what, I've got another job down the road and it's hit a real problem at the moment and I'm using a lot of my resources on there just to get it through, that the, the developer may not be happy with that, but it's a, more of an honest answer as opposed to a builder saying, yeah, no, everything's okay, and the developer drives past and there's no one on site again today. And yep. He just feels like there's not that honesty there and, and trust starts to come in. And, and I think um, we've probably all been in situations of when you lose trust in something, you start looking for things. And I think sometimes you start seeing things that aren't there or they're blown out of proportion. Yep. Um, so I think it's if there's a little bit more honesty there between between those parties, um, and and I think people, especially developers now, uh, are very busy people outside of the, this particular build that they're on, and that um, they come past in that that fleeting moment, and something's not where they think it can be, and they they think the worst. And I think we all we've all seen social media and phone. And internet and updates of you know builders going bust and this and that so people start to get wary and worried and then put pressure on each other and um, whereas you know I think maybe if you're going to do some of these big developments keep that line of communication open and have a monthly meeting or a, a fortnightly meeting and and keep that that sort of good communication open of where things are and, and maybe not come down on it with a ton of bricks on being a couple of days behind on something but make it known that you know why is that and and get the correct reason mm. i guess that's that's sagely advice but human beings being human beings you're still going to have plenty of work with those sort of broken communication lines and that's what people have to understand is that you know a builder is a human being that has you know, the life pressures outside of your house that he's building like anyone else he has kids at schools and and this and and same as the developer they have the same sort of pressures and money is sometimes you know even though you've got approval it can sometimes be slow and um you know someone thinks they're not getting paid because the person doesn't want to pay them but it just could be in the background there's a bit of an error with some paperwork Mm. um i think you just sometimes got to be clear on that so for sort of your average residential investor or small scale developer they might have some exposure to to quantity surveyors for you know renovations whether it being just sort of costing those up or new builds and i know that that quantity surveyors are, are called upon in in new south wales to to assess the value of improvements what's what's your role there and, and how might people come across a quantity surveyor like yourself yeah so in new south wales um 
the, a lot of the, um, the, the sort of mandatory that a county surveyor needs to sign off on the construction costs through the Section 94 uh, developer contribution. So that's when uh, a developer is looking at doing a development. There are going to be future residents or people that are going to be moving into that, whether it be a house uh, or units. Now, there needs to be money put aside to pay for infrastructure work such as roads and footpaths and making sure there's parks and, and community services in these de- uh, in and around these developments. So um, you have to pay a, a contribution, a, a developer contribution, which is the Section 94. So what was happening uh, early on is a, a developer didn't want to have to pay that, that large fee. So they would say, well, our development's only going to cost... $500,000, even though it might have been a $2 million build because yep. their fee was less. So councils were sort of missing out on, on these monies that they could be using for you know, updating roads and curbs and putting parks in and, and the, this infrastructure. So they made it a mandatory thing that county surveyors would need to sign off on the construction cost of, of this development. So it just made it more of a, f- a fairer playing field. Yep. Uh, so we go in and assess what the construction costs will be. We'll fill in a council form. Every council typically has the same sort of format. Uh, it's very similar. Um, some have some slight sort of tweaks, and um, we'll fill in that form as well as giving a, a detailed cost plan of what the costs are going to be, and, and then they can work out their council contributions off that. Yep. Now, that's you know before you've even got development approval so we're going back to where we're talking before about at the very start of a job when you've got a developer and a an architect that are still sort of sketching stuff on uh, on plans that's when you know a quantity surveyor is being used that's not the same across the country it's not the same in all the states uh, so mandatory it's New South Wales there's a few councils in Victoria that are starting to get behind that and see the merit in that so hopefully that's just a a point in time that um, Victoria sort of follows suit on that and, and Queensland. Yeah. And property investors that own strata titled properties may have had exposure to someone like yourself, but perhaps not even known it because it was sort of engaged through the, the strata manager or, or the owner's corporation. But but you, you do a lot of work with sinking fund estimates. What, can you tell us more about your role in those? Yeah, so the role that the quantity surveyor is playing there or we're playing there is is that there will be a sinking fund with uh, that unit entitlement and, and, and that's to replace materials and items once they've reached their lifespan. So uh, it might be a balustrade. So the balustrade is deemed common property on this particular development and it's a glass balustrade. Uh, it's going to have a lifespan. So the lifespan of that balustrade in the current environment that it is it's near the marine environment or not, let's say it's 25 years for the replacement of that balustrade. Uh, What you don't want as an owner of that unit block is that one day that 25-year mark comes around and it's $100,000 to replace all the balustrades in the the development and you've got to chuck your hand in your pocket for your share of that. So the idea is, is that monies are getting put away each year for that event when it comes up so we'll go in and do a a sinking fund forecast where we go and uh, quantify and and cost all those common items and it it would be things like carpet and tiles and paint in common lobbies and and hallways or your balcony works if they're common with the balustrades the roof if it's a common roof and the guttering and downpipes and we'll put a price on each of those items uh, and quantify how many 
you know, lineal meters or square meters of each of those are, and then and then give an indication of what we believe that lifespan to be. So if it was a downpipe, uh, we might say that it's got a thirty-year lifespan and it would need to be replaced. And when it in in thirty years, and when it does, it's going to be a certain number, thirty dollars a lineal meter to replace. Yep. So then, what people can go, okay, okay that's going to cost thirty thousand dollars. That all those downpipes in thirty years. Let's start putting money away for it now. So I guess in its simplest form, um, if it was 30 years and it's going to cost 30 grand, they've got to put $1,000 away a year. And of that $1,000, there are five units. They've all got their own different unit entitlement and they'll break up that share of that money per year. It's obviously, um, it's not necessarily as simple as that, that, that math formula we just spoke about because there are also cost escalation. So what the gutter might cost or the downpipe might cost $1,000 now, but in five years' time it might be $1,200. So we have to add some escalations uh, to that as well. But primarily what we're doing is we're, we're saying this is these are the items that are going to need replacement. These are the years it's going to need to be replaced or we're forecasting it's going to need to be replaced. This is the money it's going to cost. This is what you should be putting away now. So when that event happens, you've got the money sitting there. Yep. I guess that's a, a form of insurance for the building in a way. So you, you're planning that things will, will break over time and you have that money sort of set yep. aside. Another sort of service I know you do is replacement cost estimates. So that's when, let's say, your house is burnt down or you've had flood damage or, or what have you. Um, obviously, we're not sort of chipping into our pockets each week just to, to calculate a, a percentage so we can rebuild after a certain time. We sort of outsource that to insurance companies. So um, how is it that you, you help investors with getting those insurances right? Yeah, so uh, residential investors, it's a bit harder. They, they, they tend to be a little bit more cost sensitive. They're already you know, paying their property managers and they're already putting some money away for hot water services you know, uh, and, and all those sort of things and they don't want to spend too much money on it. And So we tend to do a lot of insurance replacement estimates on commercial developments. Um, but the, the reasoning and the importance of it is just the same. So when looking at a residential house, you know, we're saying to people, uh, you need to replace your house, to rebuild your house is going to cost you X. But that shouldn't be what you go and insure your property for because there's, there's a lot more to just what the cost to rebuild your house is when it comes to insurance. Uh, and so what we do, we do up a, a replacement cost report and we will, we'll identify what the replacement cost of that house is. But then we we also cost in some other items and say, well, if uh, if it's going to burn down or it's going to be flood damaged, no one has clicked their fingers and your house has just totally disappeared and you're starting fresh uh, on your build like you were potentially when you, you first built. Uh, you're going to have to have some cost to remediate the site, to demolish the existing and start again. So we put some money in for that. Uh, and then you're going to have the costs of site work so the retaining walls and the gardens and all these extra things that you've been bolting on over the years uh, you're going to need to replace it's not just the house uh, and then you're going to have the cost escalations that go along with that so if we're saying that you're going to replace your house today uh, and it's going to cost x amount it's going to take a few months for the assessment to be done by the insurance company and another few months to get your house drawn up with an architect and get it through development and planning approvals and then a new, another month or so for a 
couple of builders to go through the tender process and give you a price and and, and maybe a, you know a, a few weeks or a month for a quantity surveyor to be costing that up and double check that and so suddenly you know we're at we're at sort of nine or ten months before we've even started to rebuild yet so when we're talking about what the replacement cost be we should be looking at well we're not even going to start building for another year Let, we've got to make sure we're putting some cost escalation on what it's going to cost them to rebuild next year uh, and then there are some other sort of design sort of things that you need to allow for and um, and, and, and then even that, just be wary that if your house burns down, you're need, going to need to live somewhere. Now, we, you just got to be a bit more mindful of it, not just let's click our fingers and rebuild this house that we've currently got. Now, I know that uh, most people would probably opt to, to come up with a figure that's given to them by the insurance company or using their online calculators. Are those figures factored in? And, and, and if so, uh, uh, is it accurate enough to, to use those calculators? No, the, the calculators are very broad and, and they're meant to be a supportive tool. Uh, they're meant to, to give you a bit of a, an overview. Um, it, you'd really need to get it costed. So, because the, the thing is, is that a cost calculator isn't going to take into account that you have a sloping site and you need to have a 40 lineal metre by 4 metre high retaining wall at the back. Uh, and it's not going to be able to just say that what size pool you've got or that you've got a a half basketball court down the bottom so when you're looking at the costs of homes you might have very high-end finishes in your particular home it may be a weatherboard home looking from the front and and you've been able to select on a cost calculator weatherboard three-bedroom home but you may have quite extensive fittings inside and uh, light fittings or technology with sea buses and those sort of things which aren't going to relate to a four-bedroom weatherboard home, a single story in a cost calculator. So if I guess if it's, a, if it's quite a simple home, there still could be differences. It's not going into whether it's peed or on a slab or whatever it might be. So we always say spend, spend the couple of dollars. It's a big investment that you've got. Uh, you, you know, you, you're quite prepared to, to buy a a home that's $500,000 or more, but not spend a couple of hundred dollars on getting a, a cost plan done for, for insurance. Yep. And I guess the, the the negative side is that if something happened, you might find yourself exposed and having to cover a shortfall. Um, on the other side of things, you might have to pay a higher premium, but that's because I guess you were under-insured, underinsured in the first place, right? Yeah, and then you hear the horror stories of the the figure you had was 80% of, of what the actual cost was, so therefore what the insurance pay, um, payment's going to be is 80% of that value and suddenly you're shorter again on, on your replacement cost and, and those sort of things. So it's just important to to spend the time at the start as much as it is, you know, like go and get a building and pest inspection done. The same should be said for if you're going to have a property and you're going to live in it or you're going to rent it, make sure you've got the coverage there for it. Yep. And what is it that you enjoy most about being a quantity surveyor, Marty? If if there is if there is anything at all, I think it. Um, I, I take it back to when I was when I was building. I I think um, what sort of gets my juice going is the is the tangible thing. I like to see something physically. I like to build something and see the end result. So with quantity surveying, I, I may not be swinging a hammer anymore, but I'm seeing a set of plans come across my desk that are in, at sketch level and we've, we've costed that up and, and, and that has meant that 
everyone was happy and they're now going to progress to a builder and and then uh, we you know we do a more detailed cost plan and and uh, we then compare three builders pricing and it and lo and behold a builder is selected and signed up and the developer then goes away to the uh, financier and says I'm going to need to get some money to build this and the financier says well let's get the QS to do his checks and next thing you know we're we're now working with the builder to make sure he's got his insurances in place and and the construction certificate or the um, building permits being granted so suddenly you know we're now at a point where someone's going to actually knock the tree over or dig a hole on site so we get out to site and 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 works begin and we then start going out there once a month or or more frequently and assessing what's been done and the builders getting paid and uh, then the, you know, there might be a bit of a hiccup and we're able to help out either party to, to get that sorted and suddenly there's a, a house built and suddenly there's occupation and the bank's been paid out and they're, they're great and they're happy and um, we now do a, a depreciation schedule because the developer has now rented it and we, we've seen this come from a, a set of plans that were pretty simple where they didn't even know what they wanted, what roof was going to be built of. Uh, we were sort of making assumptions at the start to uh, going in and doing an inspection with tenants' furniture in there, someone's living. Yep. Uh, so you can, we. The beauty about that for me is I get to see something go from from start to finish. Uh, whereas there are a lot of jobs out there that you never see the product, uh, you never get to feel the product, or never get to see it evolve or grow or change um, and the little things that pop up that you need solving along the way are just those little challenges that every job's different then uh, and I think that's what I enjoy about it. Yeah and I've, I've enjoyed sort of looking at some of the photos of your progress claims and doing some of the inspections on your behalf to see you know a block of dirt turn into something um, rather fantastic so yeah it's interesting a lot of people don't get to see that you just sort of find the end product and, and buy it but yeah you've got that sort of behind the scenes uh, yeah inside look at how it all comes together so yeah and someone will see a wall and say well that's a nice wall and I'll see that wall and go yeah but I can remember six months ago that to do that there was a major issue and there was this and that and the wall means so much more yeah. and that's hard to explain to people yeah so Marty if people have got some questions for you or wanted to have a chat about anything uh, estimating related how do they get in touch with you yeah look w- without getting you know too sales pitchy just jump on the website uh, my details are on there and so if you get on the MCG QS website, um, all our details are there, emails and phone numbers. Uh, and, you know, for the for the cost of an email or the cost of a phone call, it's a pretty cheap chat, and I'm always up for one. So, um, and your phone calls are free be, too, right? Yeah, yeah, they can just... We're not charging for that, and I spend you know, most of my days on the phone to people that are um, just wanting to, you know, pick the brain and have a chat about stuff and um, you know, we'll end up you know, winning the job or working with them on other developments or that development and it all started from hey you know if I was building a house like what what should I be looking at or, or what have you and um, it's just getting around people that are like-minded or have a little bit more knowledge in certain areas and helping you out. Awesome. Now, Marty, just before you go, if there's one piece of advice you could impart to to property investors, what what would that be? Uh, I love these questions because um, being born in the 70s and a product of 80s ads, whenever I get asked this question, I always go back to the 
the Pizza Hut ads with Dougie <laughs> um, delivering the pizzas, you know, be good to your mother. But I think um, from a quantity surveying point of view is just know your numbers. Um, I, I think it's the same as if you're going to go and buy a car, you, you walk in and you, you, you get a price on a car and more than likely you'll jump on the computer and you'll double check that against somewhere else or other car selling websites or other dealerships or or what have you and you shop around and you play against each other and what have you. The same has to be said about property that if you're going to do a bathroom renovation and you don't just ring up someone and the first price you get is what you go with. Know your numbers, know what the breakup is and if someone's not prepared to give you the breakup of it, for me they're probably not the person to use. Um, if, if I want to, you know, do a build a house, I, I don't want to build it to say it's going to be two hundred thousand dollars. I want to know where because if it if it increases for whatever reason with a variation later on, how do you know what that variation is because it was never itemised? They, they don't have to provide a full bill of quantities, but just know your numbers, know what you're you're investing in. Awesome advice. Be good to your mother and know your numbers. Love your work, Marty. Yeah. Thanks for uh, thanks for coming on Good for Growth. Yeah, thanks for having me. Cheers.